Well, good morning. It's lovely to be with you here in St. Field Baptist, and uh, thank you to Brian for leading and for Ian with the children's talk this morning. It's much appreciated. As he mentioned, you might have recognized me, and he gave the game away, and he said I might have been here singing before the last time was just up the road, I believe, at the community centre. I think you're having to drive in a series of meetings. Maybe that was over lockdown or whatever. And so you might be a little confused. If he thought he could sing, now he thinks he can speak. So you're in for a long day. That's all I'm going to say. Anyway, let's turn to the book of Acts, please, this morning. Acts chapter 2. And I want to think this morning about the church that we ought to be, the church that we ought to be. These will be familiar principles to you here in St. Field. You have been well taught over the years, but it's always good to go over these things, the fundamentals, and to make sure you know what you believe. Acts chapter 2, we're going to break in at verse 37, of course. Uh, Those of you who will be familiar with the book of Acts in chapter 2, we've had Peter and his wonderful preaching at Pentecost And 3,000 souls were saved. And now we've broken in at verse 37. And it's really the results of Pentecost and what happened to all these new believers. But let's begin to read God's word. Acts chapter 2 and the verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that that gladly received his word were baptized, And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord, In the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Amen. And we'll end our reading there at the end of chapter 2. The young parents carefully put the wrinkly newborn into the car seat, navigated the midwife's well wishes, and walked gingerly out to the hospital corridor and pressed the button for the lift. When they were in the lift, the parents looked into the mirror of those modern lifts, looked at each other, looked down at the car seat, and then said, well, what do we do now? Within 12 hours of arriving home, there'd be an emergency phone call placed to Granny to help as the new parents struggled to settle the newborn baby. But gradually, the night feeds began to disappear. The sleep started to return. The nappies continued. The teething then kicked in, but the nappies still continued. The growth, all the little stages, the talking, everything else, the nappies still continued. All these different things continued. And at every single stage, there is that question, well, what do we do now? That was me in that example, by the way, just to clarify that. 
We've all asked that question, I'm sure. But as we consider what we have just read, and in verse 41, where we read that there were 3,000 souls saved, I'm sure the apostles at that particular moment asked that question or a similar question, what do we do now? What happens next? Yes, we have saw God move in a mighty way. He's moved. There's 3,000 souls have been saved, but what on earth do we do? Well, we will see as we move through our passage this morning a very simple picture. There's a great picture, is there not, here in these verses before us. The apostles must have looked out at that vast number, newborn babies, in Christ. And the shepherding responsibility was now on them. It was over to them. They had great responsibility. No wonder as the book of Acts progresses, you'll begin to read all the formation of church government, the elders, the deacons, and how it all falls in and how it's designed by God to properly care for the flock. And just like those newborn babies are very dependent upon their parents in those early days, indeed, newborn believers, they, in this particular case, they needed a lot of guidance. They needed a lot of steering. They needed a lot of shepherding uh, to avoid and learn how to live for Christ, learn how to avoid danger, temptation, how to submit to the authority of the church, how to relate to one another, all the different things. I'm sure you can see parallels with raising young children and how they have different needs. There's just three little pictures that I want to leave with you in the time that we have this morning. The first thing I want you to notice will be the attributes that define the church. The attributes that define the church. Then I want you to see the assembly that comprised the church. And then finally, I want you to see with me, if we get there, the appeal that marketed the church. The attributes that define the assembly that comprised and the appeal that marketed. First of all, the attributes that defined this local church. Do you remember the background to this great chapter? If you come back to verse 14 of chapter 2 with me, you'll see Peter. It's a wonderful study in the book of Acts in chapter 2. But in whenever the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all sitting. But if you look at verse 14 of chapter 2, Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. He was filled. He confronted them with the truth. And then if you drop your eye down to verse 37, which was our opening verse uh, this morning, they were convicted. Now when they heard this, verse 37, they were pricked in their heart. That little expression just simply means they were cut to the heart. They were absolutely cut. They had no other uh, reaction other than to be confronted with the truth. They were convicted by the Spirit, but then, praise God, in verse 41, we read that they were converted to the Lord. Then they that were gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And then as we move through, they confessed their faith in verse 41. And again in verse 41, they wanted to have communion or the Lord's table with the saints. Do you see the pattern that's laid out for us as believers? You hear the word of God, you get saved. You receive Christ, you get baptized, you get added. Saved, baptized, added. It's not complicated, is it? Saved, baptized, added. Let me ask you here this morning, because uh, I don't really know any of you at all, and maybe that's a good thing, but let me challenge you this morning. Are you saved here this morning? Maybe it's possible there's somebody with us here and you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. No better time than to get saved than a Sunday morning. If you're saved here this morning, are you baptized? Have you went through the waters of baptism? Have you obeyed the Lord in the simple commandment of baptism? Have you openly and unashamedly confessed Christ as your Savior, obeying him? And then let me ask you, if you've been saved, if you've been baptized, let me ask you, have you been added to this local assembly or some other local church? Are you submitting yourself to the rule of a local church? You see, 
all throughout the New Testament, you'll find there's no room for spiritual butterflies. Do you know any spiritual butterflies? Oh, they flit about from church to church and place to place. Whatever one sort of puts on the brightest show or the nicest show, they'll go there for a little while and then they'll go somewhere else. But in the New Testament, there's no room for spiritual uh, butterflies. Look at verse 42. I want you to notice something. Those who had been saved, baptized, added, what did they do? There's a beautiful phrase here. And they, not some, by the way, they, all of them, continued steadfastly. They continued steadfastly. You see, these believers didn't disappear once they got into membership. I heard a story one time about a church that was having trouble with bats. That's real bats, not uh, older ladies, just to clarify that. But they had a problem with bats. And they decided to convene a church meeting to deal with it. I don't know if that was the wisest thing to do, but they did that. And they put out from the front, how are we going to deal with these bats? And then there was an old boy at the back. It's always an old boy at the back, isn't it? Well, he spoke up and he says, well, if we could only get the bats saved, if we could only get them baptized and into membership, they'd soon disappear. (laughs) Isn't that sadly the truth for so many believers at times? They get saved, they get added, and then they disappear and you never hear tell of them again. And they're on the road for as ever long as they want. But let me tell you this. These believers were marked by a number of things. Look at verse 42. They were, first of all, these believers were marked by the truth. And they continued steadfastly in what? The apostles' doctrine and fellowship. First and foremost came the apostles' doctrine. That's no accident, by the way, that that comes first. It always comes first. And all the epistles' precept comes before practice. You see, we have to experience life and we have to test it by doctrine. Doctrine by experience. There's a very simple command, and I know this is familiar ground for you, but in Scripture it's told time and time again to what? Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Just as simple as that. You know what people need today? We heard about false and true this morning. And that is so true. I can't remember who said it, but somebody said in the age of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And let me tell you, we are certainly in that age and generation today. There is so much deception. There is so much deceit. Are you getting involved with the Word? Are you reading the Word? Are you absorbing the Word? Are you getting under the sound of God's Word? What was the apostles' doctrine? You see, they didn't have lovely uh, leather-bound Bibles and different things like you and I have here this morning. They had no lovely authorized version to read and to glean from. What was the apostles' doctrine? Well, they would have been listening from the apostles, the words of Christ, the sayings of Christ, all those different things. I remember a lady testifying in my home church in Lurgan, and she testified that they had so many Bibles in her house that they were able to color coordinate them with different outfits whenever they come out to church. Isn't that fantastic? And yet there's so many across the world today have only a little shred of Scripture here and there. Such privilege we have in Northern Ireland. Do you know that? We are so blessed. We are so privileged to have so much of God's Word. Well, the Apostles' Doctrine, the sayings of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, Those final conversations in the upper room, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ would have been brought before these new converts through the apostles time and time and time again. You know, Paul would go on to write in 2 Timothy 2 and 2, commit, uh, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. These early believers were marked by the truth. They sat under a teaching ministry. 
in order for those young converts to grow and to flourish, they had to do that. Let me ask you this morning, do you uh, submit yourself? Do you ensure that you're under the sound of God's word each and every week? Not just a Sunday morning or Sunday evening, but your midweek. I believe it's a Wednesday. Are you out on a Wednesday night to glean from God's word? See if you're younger here this morning. You know, my age and younger. Yeah? 32 and younger. Yeah? If you're young here, can I ask you, can I encourage you, right up from teenagers on up, get yourself under the sound of God's word. Ask your parents to bring you along to the midweek. You know, I'll, I'll admit it. I grew up in a church in, in Lisburn, and I used to ask mum and dad to go to the midweek on a Tuesday so I would get out of having to do homework and things like that. Now, there's an idea for you, isn't it? But let me tell you something serious. Whenever I went to those midweeks and they had the, the Bible study and the prayer meeting, I listened to older saints really pray. I listened to older saints getting through to God. And I didn't really realize it or appreciate it at the time, but that was an incredible learning experience for me, to listen to those older people pray. You're young here this morning. It's good to see so many young people all ages. Can I encourage you, get out to the midweek. Get yourself under God's word. Listen to the older people pray. And don't be afraid to open your mouth and pray. Because let me tell you, whenever you hear that new voice in the prayer meeting or a younger voice, nothing gives more encouragement than that. They were not only marked by the truth, but let me tell you this, they were marked by the tie. Look at verse 42 again. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. They continued in fellowship. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. This is the first occurrence of this word in the Greek. It's called koinonia. And it's an idea that has its roots in commonness or commonality. These early believers, they shared a commonality of being together for Christ. You see, every time we read this word, koinonia, or fellowship in the New Testament, it's always in the context of sharing, in sharing. You see, in Acts chapter 2, the emphasis is actually on the word giving, giving. You see, fellowship cost something in the early church. If you drop your eye down to verse 44 and 45, you can see this. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. You see, there was sacrifice. They looked out for one another. Fellowship comes through sharing and through giving. Now, we often... And there's nothing wrong with it, don't get me wrong. We often maybe uh, relegate fellowship to a wee cup of tea after a meeting, after a Sunday night or a midweek or whatever else, and there's nothing wrong with it. That's good to meet together as God's people and to get to know each other. But that's not really the biblical idea of fellowship. Fellowship comes through sharing and through giving. You know, that's fellowship. When we use that word, we need to remember it's linked with giving. Do you want to have fellowship one with another here in in Saintfield? Then, according to the New Testament church, we have to be a giver. They were not only marked by the truth. They were not only marked uh, by the tie. But look at verse 42 again. They were marked by the table. They were marked by the table. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Breaking of bread. What was the Lord's farewell request before he went to the cross? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. This do in remembrance of me. It's a simple commandment, isn't it? It's not an advisory. It's not a guideline. It's not a nice to have. But my, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died to save you from an eternal hell, the one who died to save you from sin, wipe out your sin debt. I wonder this morning, do you adhere to his command, this too, in remembrance of me? There's an old preacher used to say, it tells us, 
It's a regular thing. It's as oft, not as seldom. Let me tell you, let me ask you, are you here often to remember the Lord, to remember the one who remembered us? Are you here as often as your circumstances allow? You know, if you love somebody, do you not enjoy being in their company? Men, do you love being with your wives? I'm just going to look down. You know, if you love somebody, you want to be with them, don't you? If you love somebody, you'll make time for them. Is it possible maybe here this morning, and I don't know your hearts this morning, only you know your own hearts, is it possible you've maybe grown cold in your love for the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe you've slipped into formality. You've become a wee bit distant. The table's become a wee bit optional. Maybe that's why you're not at the table. Only you can answer these questions yourself. I wonder whenever you do come to the table, do you come righteously to the table? Do you come with pure hands? Or clean hands and a pure heart. There's no unconfessed sin. There's no proud heart. There's no bitterness. There's no thoughts of malice towards somebody else in the assembly. Do you come righteously? Do you come thankfully to the table? It's easy, isn't it, to get into the habit, especially in, in our sort of circles, in the Baptist circles or other places that observe the table every week and you just sort of get used to it. But my, do you come thankfully? Do you come regularly and thankfully? You know, whenever you come week by week to the table, one thing I find that it it does for me, it just simply increases your thankfulness. You might be tempted to think, well, if you go every week, do you not lose a wee bit? Does it not lose its significance? No. You only get drawn closer to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. Look, the believers were marked by the truth. They were marked by the tie. They were marked by the table. But then look again at verse 42. They were marked by the throne. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. You see, the Greek in this phrase can be rendered, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. You see, the early believers, they continued to pray. The opportunity had come to communicate with the great God of heaven, and my, they weren't going to let that go. They weren't going to let that opportunity go. They were dependent on God for everything everything. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but that's why in verses 44 and 45, they had to sell possessions and goods and help each other out. People gave up careers. People gave up their livelihoods because they got saved, because they traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. But let me tell you, they were marked by prayer. They were marked by the throne. I wonder this morning, have we lost sight of the great privilege of prayer? Have you lost sight of the great privilege of prayer? Are you continuing steadfastly in prayer? Do you know, Mars was never my strong point, so you feel free to do these calculations at home. Now, I worked it out uh, for my own assembly at home now. The pre-service prayer meeting takes, what, 15, 20 minutes? Do you know that equates to 0.014% of your week? 0.014% of your week to come out and pray in the morning. The midweek, say the midweek is two hours from when you leave the house to whenever you get home, 1% of your time. There's 168 hours in the week. You can do the mass. Check that out later because it was never my strong point. But 1% of your week to come out and to pray. And I know people are busy. I know people have commitments. I know people have families and all the rest of it. But I wonder, have we got ourselves to a position where we're so busy We can't even give the Lord 1% of our week to pray and to plead for the souls 
of Saintfield or wherever it is that you come from in your family. You see, what happens when we pray, when you come to pray, when I come to pray, we recognize our dependence on God. We recognize that we're turning over all our thoughts, all our plans, all our hopes, all our ambitions, all our issues in prayer. See, the early church, they took the promise of prayer seriously. They prayed to God that he would supply their need, and they pursued it with absolute confidence. Isn't it so often, I'm sure it's not the case here in Saintfield, but isn't it so often that the prayer meetings only attract the faithful few? But here, undoubtedly, the reason uh, before us for the strength of this early church was the fact that they prayed. Do you pray personally? Do you pray corporately? You know, the Bible tells us time and time again to pray at all times and to be devoted in prayer. They were marked by the truth. They were marked by the tie. They were marked by the table. They were marked by the throne. But secondly, this morning, I want you to see the assembly or the people that comprised the church. Look at verse 41 with me again. And they that, were gladly, and they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Do you notice in verse 42 and verse 41, verse 43, verse 44, there's a number of phrases. Then they, not some that gladly received his word, were baptized. Verse 42, and they, not some, continued steadfastly. Verse 43, and fear came upon some. No, fear came upon every soul. Verse 44, and all. Not just some that believed were together. They were all together. You see, there was a lot of hate. There was a lot of ridicule. There was a lot of persecution that was flying around them if they remained faithful. Indeed, the good times that we read of in Acts 2 and Acts 3 to a certain extent would soon disappear in Acts chapter 4. And you can read how the persecution began to creep in. But isn't it so true today that sadly many churches today, and I'm sure it's the exception here in St. Field, but many churches today are made up of unsaved people. Unsaved people. But first and foremost, in this fellowship that we have read of here this morning, the professors were all possessors. Those who professed Christ actually possessed Christ. You know, Luke describes the movement of God in relation to salvation, he tells us in, in verse 47 here, and the Lord added. Who were added? The believers. Who added them? The Lord. And what were they added to? The church. They were saved, baptized, and they identified with the local church. They didn't ask the question, do you need to join the local church? Joining the church or memberships for older people, it's for my parents, it's for my grandparents. I don't really know what I would get out of it. Does it really matter if I participate or not? Well, it's not so much of what you get out of church, but of what church can get out of you to serve in the local assembly. Why is the local church important? What's a local church made up? Well, in Philippians 1.1, you can get the answer. It's made up of bishops or pastors and elders, deacons and saints. And what qualities can we learn from and from these early believers? Look at verse 42. They were consistent. Look at verse 42. And they continued steadfastly. They were a faithful people. You know, they were so faithful, it would have been absent. They would have been noted when they were absent. Some believers you note whenever they turn up. Isn't that right? But not in this local assembly, not in this church. And again, I know that circumstances often dictate how frequently believers are able to meet. But in these last days, in these days before the Lord returns to the air to take us home with himself, we are warned in Scripture that we need to be gathering together. We need to be together, hearing from the heavenlies before the Lord comes to take us away. I wonder, are you one of those here in St. Field where it could be said of you, he or she continued steadfastly? 
Are you steadfast here in the work? Now, I understand that you may not be a pulpit person. You may not be one for the front. I understand that some people, some believers feel they have very little to offer in terms of a gift. But there is one thing that every member can do. There's one thing that every person here can do as long as their health permits. And that is to be here when the church meets. It's as simple as that. You can be here. And let me tell you, for those who lead the work here, um, there's nothing more encouraging than whenever you see people turn up to hear the word of God. I wonder if you're too busy then, do we need to or do you need to reassess uh, what is required for spiritual activity? John six sixty three tells us, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. You see, they were not only consistent, but they were generous. Look again at verse 44. I know we've covered it slightly earlier. Verse 44. Now, this is not as some try to tell us some sort of Christian communism or socialism for the saints, but this band of believers was not a Christian commune. You see, during those great religious feasts, the common people in Jerusalem, they would have opened their homes and they would have shared all their resources with the visitors. And many of those members of the early church, they would have been pilgrims, they would have been saved whenever they were visiting Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. And you know what they did? They stayed. They stayed in Jerusalem to move forward with the work of God. And those that were already there, as verse 44 and 45 tells us, they looked after them. You see, there was no welfare state. There was no safety net uh, like we have in, in our country today. And they were completely dependent upon their brothers and sisters in Christ. See, this is the body of Christ at work. This is the body of Christ at work. This was love. This wasn't law. It was compassion. It wasn't compulsion. They just voluntarily gave of their goods and their, and their financial needs to ensure that the rest of the fellowship wouldn't go without. If you really love your fellow brother and sister in Christ, you'll not worry about seeking to give them a hand, seeking to help out when there's a need. Do you care, do I care whenever another member in the body suffers? If they suffer materially, financially, physically, spiritually, do we care enough to give? Give, yes, financially, but do we give of our time? Do we lift the phone? How are you doing? I notice you haven't been with us for a wee while. Is everything all right? Showing that you care, physically, spiritually. Bringing them a bag of groceries or whatever else they need. Do we care enough to give? You know, in 1 John three eighteen, John's words, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and truth. They had generosity. But look at verse 46 very quickly. They had unity. You know, all throughout the book of Acts, there's this little phrase, with one accord, and you'll read it at least 11 times, with one accord. Or in one mind, there's different ways of expressing it. But time and time and time and time again throughout the book of Acts, unity, unity, unity. Could this be, amongst other things, one of the most prominent factors of how the early church was so powerful? They were together. They stuck together. You see, so often when there's multiplication in a church, there can be murmuring. And when you had 3,000 souls saved, it wouldn't be long before maybe... Somebody didn't like somebody else. Somebody else rubbed them up the wrong way. In our maybe day and generation, he parked in my parking space. He had the, she or he had the audacity to sit in my pew. Do you not know my name's in that pew? You know what it's like, the little things. I wonder, 
Do you know when the enemy can't attack from outside, so often he'll have a go from within. And do you know the saddest thing of all? Sometimes believers are totally oblivious that they're doing the devil's work. Did you know that? I wonder today, as you examine your life and your conduct, are you giving the old enemy a foothold? Are you doing the work of the enemy? You speak an ill of a brother. You sow in discord among the brethren, accusing a brother or sister in the Lord. You see, disunity can be so subtle. It doesn't have to be a full-blown split to be for people to look at it and go, oh, that's disunity. Disunity can be so subtle. We have to be so careful. We have to be so careful how we go about our lives, even in the Lord. You know what? They not only had unity, they not only had generosity, but look at verses 46 and 47. They had something that Northern Irish believers really struggle with. They had happiness. It's great to be saved, isn't it? Isn't it good to be saved? Yeah? There's one or two you're happy here this morning. Happiness is to know the Savior. I've only five minutes left. That'll make you happy. Happiness is to know the Savior. Living a life within his favor. Having a change in my behavior. Happiness is the Lord. You know, we shouldn't be surprised whenever we read that. In verse 46 and 47, they continued daily of one accord in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house to eat their meat with what gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. It's okay to be happy, you know, as a believer. They loved each other. They shared together. They were unified. They were consistent. And they were saved. How could they not be anything but happy? How could they not be anything but joyful? And joy is a very contagious thing. Let me tell you, if people come in here happy, it'll soon start to spread. I wonder this morning, do you come in here with joy or do you come in with judgment? Do you come in with praise or do you come in with pessimism? Is there gratitude or is there grumbling? Do you seek to pick holes or do you seek to to praise the Lord? Do you come in with complaints or do you come in with contentedness? Are you a negative or are you a positive influence around the assembly? These believers were burning with the joy of salvation. Maybe the Lord needs to revisit me afresh with a realization of the joy of salvation. And look, I get it. I completely get it. I understand there'll be people in here today who have carried heavy, heavy burdens throughout the week. And you say, well, that's okay for you to come off of that this morning in the pulpit, but if you'd lived the life that I've just lived for the last seven days or so, you wouldn't see much joy in it. And I understand that. People have many different burdens. The burden of maybe caring for a loved one who's not well. Maybe parents who are growing older. You're busy at home with the children. And they don't want to get along. And it just wears down and everything else. And there's different things going on in the business. There's different things going on at work. Maybe your line manager's changed. And he or she is, as we would say, a complete dose. And it's very hard to get along with them. And you don't have an awful lot of joy coming in here this morning. Can I just remind you this morning, if you strip all of those things away, and some of those are very legitimate concerns, if you're here this morning as a saved child of God, your sin has been dealt with. The thing that condemned you to a lost eternity in hell is gone. Gone. Never to be brought up before us again. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. That ought to put a wee bit of a smile on your face this morning, doesn't it? Joy. Then very quickly this morning, I'm down to two minutes now, the appeal that marketed the church. Now, you might say, why are you talking about marketing to do with uh, the scriptures? But I want you to see something here in verse 47. Look at it. Praising God. 
and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Another way to translate that last phrase is, and the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. You see, there was an appeal here that marketed the church. What do I mean by that? Well, do you ever meet anybody or someone and it's just a delight to be in their company? You know, like your mother-in-law. Yeah? I love my mother-in-law because she's watching this morning. Right? But you know, whenever you hear, you know, mommy's coming up. Great. Yeah? No, she's a great woman. I really like her. She's great to me. Very good to me. But you know, whenever you hear somebody that you like and they're coming over to the house, well, maybe your heart skips a beat. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I let you decide. But you know, whenever you meet somebody, maybe you work with somebody and you have a really good relationship with them and you get on well with them and to go through a day of work's just a breeze because they're good crack and all the rest of it. It's a good advertisement, isn't it? Well, do you know something? There was something about these new believers here in Acts chapter 2. They radiated joy. They had such a sincere desire to help each other. It would have been noted by those who weren't saved. And there was a sense of attractiveness about them. They marketed Christ in a good way. Does that happen very much? Look at verse 43. There was effectiveness. Uh, One translation puts it like this. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. It's whenever you realize that God is doing something special in and through these people. You see, there was a genuine spirit at play in this early church. They were putting their needs before each other. They were careful about how they talked about the church. They built each other up. They didn't tear each other down. How they talked to the church, to outsiders, they had genuine experience. And because of this, the people were in awe of what was happening. All the signs and the wonders that would be performed by the apostles. And God... We don't have time to get into it this morning, but God complemented the preaching of the apostles with those signs and wonders and miracles to reinforce the truth that they were preaching. Of course, the apostolic age has passed and the need for those signs has passed with it. But let me tell you, God still works in miracles. I mean, did you look in the mirror this morning? Now, your husband or your wife mightn't describe you as a miracle, but let me tell you, you look in the, morning, in the mirror in the morning as a saved person, you're a miracle. You're a miracle of grace of God's goodness and grace. Every day that we have, every breath that we're able to breathe, we are sustained by God and each and every day as God deems fit. Do we not hear of saving miracles from time to time? How often do we hear? Maybe in some other place or somebody that we know, oh, so-and-so got saved and they've been prayed for for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. That's a miracle. I wonder if you experienced that. There was not only an effectiveness here, but look at verse 47 quickly. There was attractiveness. Persecution would come in in chapter 4, but at this moment in time, they had favor with all the people. You know, they continued with unity. It would have been a very attractive picture, wouldn't it? People could look on and they would see, these people are still at this. You know what happened there? 3,000 were saved in that day. Maybe they thought, give them a week or two and it'll all burn out and it'll burn over and they'll be back to what they used to do. But no, they continued steadfastly. They kept on going. And the people that would have looked on at this would have realized, well, these people aren't just a one-week wonder. They're still at it. There was no complaining. There was no criticizing. There was no envy. There was no strife. The fruit of the Spirit was evident in their lives. There was that love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. You know, sometimes in employment, 
You may be here, and this used to happen to me. I used to work in the public sector, we'll leave it at that. But I used to work in the public sector, and uh, from time to time I was in a big organization, and there was different departments, and people used to chop and change jobs all the time. And they would come to you, you know, and they would say, hey, what's your line manager like? Or what's that boy like to work with? Or what's that woman like to work with? And then people would maybe comment, oh, I wouldn't go there. Your man's, oh, he's, he's hard to work for. He couldn't please him. Oh, that person that's in there, they have a real bad attitude. No, no, you wouldn't last long in there. Let me tell you, are you going to apply for a job in that particular department? It's not a trick question. Let me tell you this. How you market St. Field Baptist, how you advertise any local assembly, you have to be very careful how you talk about it to people who aren't saved or people outside the church because you are advertising the church. And then say you didn't like something that happened. That happens from time to time, but you let somebody know about it. And then you said to them, hey, we're having a gospel mission. Would you come along? Now think about it from their perspective. I'm not saying that you do this. But if you've run down the church, you've criticized elements of the church, why on earth would they come to hear the gospel? It's a sobering thought, isn't it? It's a sobering thought. You wouldn't apply for a job in a place that was negative. You wouldn't want to go to church to a place that was negative. You know, people's souls, eternal souls are in the balance, and so often we can be loose with words. You know, there was a song, a group called the Cathedrals, recorded it many years ago, but the chorus says this, When the world looks at me, do they see Jesus? When the world looks at me, what do they see? Do they see hope? Do they see love? Do they see charity? When the world looks at me, what do they see? When the world looks at me, when the world looks at you fine people here in St. Field, what do they see? Do people see us as verse 46 and 47 in our individual lives? Corporately, do they see it in your church lives? When a local walks past this church, do they say, what a bunch of boring Baptists? Do they say that? Do they say, there was a boy I used to sing with in the group, he was from Balamina, and he had some great expressions, and he used to say to me, and he never said it about St. Field, but we used to sit down after singing sometimes, and he'd lean over to me, and his Balamina accent, he'd say, hey son, they're a bunch of dear donkeys. Do they say that about you here? I'm sure they don't. Do we radiate Christ? Do we have a genuineness about us that markets us to those around about St. Faith? I'm sure there's many needy people in St. Faith. I'm sure there's many needy people around about how are we marketing the church? Is it any wonder that these believers in Acts, they had that divine blessing the Lord added? Because blessing always follows obedience. There was constant growth the Lord added to the church. Those who were being saved, there was continual salvation. The saved person wasn't putting off the unsaved by their conduct. What a picture there is before us. What a challenge there is before us. May we learn to emulate the example of those early believers in Acts chapter 2. Let's just come before the Lord in prayer before we sing our closing hymn this morning. Father, we thank you for the book of Acts. We thank you for your precious word. Father, we so often feel thee in thought, in word, and indeed, 
And Father, we pray this morning that you would forgive us wherein we have failed thee. Father, that you would help us to be and to emulate the example of the early believers that we have read off this morning, that we would continue steadfastly in all those different aspects, that we would be careful to market or to advertise the church well. And Father, that this assembly here would be pleased to see many coming in, coming to know the one who is life eternal. Father, we pray that you would bless us even as we continue on with our service. Bless those that must leave us at this time. Be with us, we pray. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. We're going to stand to sing our closing hymn this morning, 587. I want, dear Lord, a heart that's true and clean, a sunlit heart with not a cloud between, a heart like thine, a heart divine, a heart as white as snow on me, dear Lord, a heart like this bestow. Let's stand to sing. Thank you.